Gina Della from Pella. Choose five years no interest and five months no first payment or 10-year 2.99 APR financing. Ends August 31st. Set your free consultation today at PellaWI.com slash radio or 855-PELLA-WI. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us. Eric Bilstadt, before you head out, I have a question for you. Okay. All right. Have you ever, ever, made your decision on who to vote for based on a yard sign that you have seen in somebody else's house and somebody else's property no never never no me neither can you imagine a <laughs> no, no can you imagine a situation where you would say gee i was going to vote for joe biden but the guy across the street's got a trump sign up there no however i would i i would admit that if like village president was up and i saw a billion signs for one candidate and none for the other that may make me wonder if i'm choosing the right person mm-hmm. well and, and for it, like a local local right. race well, and in fairness um there was when I used to live in my old neighborhood. There, there was a guy down the block who was wrong on like every issue, <laughs> and and every once in a while, for again for these like races that I, I had no idea who you know there, somebody's running for like some obscure village position or whatever. <laughs> and if if the guy had the sign supporting Bill Stat, I'd you go the, the other way, right? Exactly. <laughs> but 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 as a general rule, right? I, the, right. No. The, no. Okay. And 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 I, I will tell you this um, for for people who think you. Yard signs, to, to your point, if you see a whole bunch of yard signs out there, they they are the worst indicator of support because, you know, generally it happened, for example, the, the years ago, Wauwatosa, Waukesha County Sheriff, this guy who was running, you know, challenging the sheriff in the primary, went out and he got a whole bunch of supporters mm-hmm. to put yard signs out there and had probably 15 to 20 times more yard signs than the existing sheriff. And he, and he lost like 85, right. 15 because they put those yard signs out there. But no, I, I, I'm with you on this. So why do we start the program with yard signs? Well, here, here, here is the deal. I, I believe, and this, see, this goes back to another life a long time ago when I ran for office. P- people would want yard signs, and they would. Look, I'm all. I'm a big believer in grassroots politics and things like that, and I, I, I believe in that. But yard signs, in my opinion, are are singularly ineffective because, like I say, for for any sort of office uh, outside, maybe the most local office, you, you're. You're not going to choose a candidate to vote for because, you know, your neighbor has, has a yard sign up. You're, you're just you're not going to do that. That's not the way it works. Plus, yard signs for a candidate's perspective, they're, they're kind of expensive and they're really not going to change anybody's mind. But you need to have yard signs because it's a way of getting people invested in your campaign. If somebody is enough of a supporter that they're willing to go out and they're going to put a yard sign in, in their yard, that means that they're going to be motivated enough to go out to vote, maybe even call a couple of their friends to go out to vote. So it's a way of engaging people, which which is why you do it. Now, I bring this up because there's a controversy going on in one of our communities to the north, Mequon. Matter of fact, I have in my hands a uh, message, a memo sent out by, by the mayor. Um, here, here's the deal. Apparently, on August 10th, which would be what, you know, next week, the Common Council in Mequon is going to be considering an ordinance 
that would revise their sign code with respect to yard signs. The ordinance says that owners of a home would be able to display no more than four signs at any time and that no sign at a residence could be larger than 18 by 24. In other words, one and a half feet by two feet. All right, so that would be it. No more than four signs on your property at any given time. And the mayor, in in his piece, is is urging the Common Council to reject this. He's saying, look, I don't like yard signs necessarily either, but but these are a form of of expression that's protected by the free speech clause. And he says, look, I I think if we do something like this, we're going to end up getting sued. And my belief is that we're probably going to lose. The city attorney says maybe we're we're okay in limiting the number of signs. But I think there there is a larger issue. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, if you want, if it is your property, and you want to put up a dozen signs saying that you support Joe Biden or you support Tony Evers or you support Donald Trump or you support Scott Walker or you want to recall the members of the school board or you want to submit and support the members of the school board, I think you should have a right to do it. And I do not think any community has the right to tell you we're going to limit you to four signs. I mean, I think that, matter of fact, I think that borders on being ridiculous. Let's look at the upcoming election. Okay, so 2022, you're going to have an election. You're going to have the governor on the ballot. You're going to have the attorney general on the ballot. You're going to have a U.S. Senate seat on the ballot. You're going to have a congressional race on the ballot. And that's before we get into any of the state Senate candidates, any of the local state representatives, any of the referendum stuff. I mean, I, I mean, Look, I, I'm not a yard sign guy. We never put up yard signs in our house, you know, and, and now I live in a condo thing where the rules say you can't have them. But I, if I wanted to put up yard signs, I think I should have the absolute right to do that. Now, if you want to craft an ordinance saying they can't be so big that they create some sort of traffic disruption or something like that. Oh, OK. I mean, I can understand that. But if somebody wants to put a bunch of yard signs up on their yard, even though I might find it to be visually unappealing, I think people have the right to do it. And I think it is scary that any government, local or otherwise, would think that they have the right to limit the number of yard signs that people can put up. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, and I agree, it, it can arguably be unsightly. Understand that. Get it. But don't you have a right? This last time I checked, it it was a free country. And I'm talking about political signs. I understand communities regulate business signs all the time with the number of, like, commercial signs you can put up and the size. I get all that. All right. But this isn't business. This is your house. And this is at least one community thinking that they want to tell you how many political signs you can put up on your property, to which I say, no, you don't have a right to do it, and any community that's doing it, I think, is going to buy themselves a lawsuit. And I appreciate you don't want to have it junked up. You don't want to have a community neighborhood looking like clutter, but it is political speech, isn't it? All right, we discuss. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. 
Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And, and let me explain for a second. Some people are saying, well, wait a second. I, you know, I, I live in this subdivision where they, they don't let you have any political signs at all. Yeah, if, if you, look, if you live in, in a, a subdivision or a condo complex where there's a homeowner's association, that, that homeowner's association has all sorts of rules. And when you buy into that place, you know, you sign saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to live under the rules, all right? And so if they say no signs, you know, you're, that's what the rules are, no signs. But what this is talking about, what Mequon is looking at doing, forget forget the homeowners association, they're saying to people who live who have private property, you know, you you live anywhere in Mequon and you want to put up political signs on your property, well, we're going to make it against the law. 855-616-1620 and and I I think that's first of all, it's going to buy a lawsuit. But secondly, I, I just think it's fundamentally wrong to tell a, a private citizen against their will. Like I say, you 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 move into a subdivision where there's a homeowners association. Well, you're agreeing, you know, when you buy that lot and become a part of the homeowners association, you're agreeing to give up certain rights. You're agreeing to abide by the rules of the community. But when you buy just a, a house, an independent house. Now this is the government coming in and telling you against your will that you can't put up signs? Give me a break. Let's start with Bob in, Walk- in Wauwatosa. Hi, Bob. You're on WTMJ. Yeah, hi, Jeff. How are you doing? Real well, About uh, 15, 20 years ago, we had uh, a rule like that in Wauwatosa, and uh, the Wauwatosa people didn't like the fe- fellow that was running for mayor, so they, they send out people to pull all the signs down based on the, on the size limitations and the number of signs. We went to court, Tom Friend and I and uh, Chris Carson, and we defeated that, got an injunction against them. Prior to that, um, <clears throat> the mayor of West Ellis uh, wanted, didn't want competition, so they were trying to pass a no-yard sign thing, and um, we indicated that we were going to put a yard sign in front of my apartment building, um, <clears throat> four by eight, as big as possible, listing the the people that were going to vote for this uh, sign, and uh, and of course they backed off on that. But as you know, because you and I worked for you on your campaign, mm-hmm. the the real purpose of, of uh, yard signs is in a three to four percent difference election, it can make the difference because you have to work really hard to get these things. People just don't mm-hmm. let you do it, and so I would have five or six women or, or guys, whatever, calling on the phone. Yeah, would you put up a yard sign for Fred Cashmore or yeah. or, or uh, Warren Knowles or somebody? And I would have them working maybe two or three months. So all these people would get contacted, right. and then we would make sure we went back and contacted the people to get them out to vote. It's really important. Right. Well, Bob, no, thank, I, right, and I get it. Thanks. And I guess I and, and that's that's to my point that that's why to me the value of yard signs is less that somebody might see it and be persuaded to vote. But it, it but you like you were just saying it engages you know that the person that's going to put that yard sign up. You know that that they're okay. They're they're now they feel like they're a part of the campaign. They are invested, so they're going to get out to vote and they're going to do others. Which is again why candidates have them and why candidates should be able to have them and communities that try to limit the number of signs are just, I think, fundamentally wrong in making an individual choose. Let's say you're somebody that likes to go the yard sign route. Well, who, you know, who is Mequon or who is another community to say, okay, let's say you support 
All the Democratic candidates, for example. So now you're going to have to pick and choose. You can have an Evers sign up there. You can have whoever the Senate candidate sign is up there. You can have whoever's running for Congress against Glenn Grothman. You can have whoever's running for Senate against Ron Johnson. But then, okay, if there's a race for state assembly or there's a referendum, you can't put that sign up. No, that's just, that's, it's fundamentally wrong to do that. Allison in Beaver Dam. Allison, you're on WTMJ. Well, good afternoon. Hi, Allison. I think, how are you doing? Good. What do you think? Um, I think that signs are okay. They're fine. They're they're approved in my book. As long as they take them down after the election. I don't want my signs sitting there like through Christmas and the next year and whatever and be responsible for taking them down because I'm disabled and if, they want to put it up, then they should take it down. Yeah, I um, th- thanks for call, Allison. I, I, by the way, I, I agree with you. I, I, I agree with you on on principle that after an election, the sign should be taken down promptly. Now there are court decisions out there which say that you you a community can't force people to take down take down signs, and and the thinking being. Okay, let's say let's say you're a Trump supporter. Let's let just for the sake of my example, let's say you're a Trump supporter and you are hoping that Donald Trump runs for uh, election again in 2024 and you're trying to express that opinion and demonstrate that you're a Trump supporter. Well, okay, should you be forced to take down your your Trump sign? And the courts have been, I think, pretty clear that you you can't force people to take down signs after elections. And because exactly that, you know, maybe you're trying to convey this message that, hey, I want Trump to run again in 2024 and I'm expressing my support of him. Um, And it's impossible to differentiate between those people and the folks that are just too lazy to pull out their the sign that they had up for the state treasurer. But um, I, I think, you know, and so that that's that's what the where the problem lies. But, you know, communities, when it comes to political speech, have to tread really, really lightly. And communities that are trying to pass these ordinances, to me, it it is a solution looking for a problem. And it's a solution that's going to create a huge problem because I guarantee you, you're going to buy an expensive lawsuit. Chris in Cedarburg. Hi, Chris. You're on WTMJ. Hey, how are you? Good. What do you think? Um, I agree with you completely. However, again, I agree with the lady prior that said, you know, you got to take them down because some of these, you know, in the town, some of these signs are looking pretty ratty. And, um, you know, it, it almost looks like, a, yeah. you know, like, like taking a garage sale sign down. You know, after, after the race is over or after, you know, you know whatever the issue is is, is kind of subsided, I think we do have to clean up the yards and kind of, you know, refresh a little bit. But I do agree that you should be able to put your signs up. I mean, I have a sign in front of our house that says, you know, you like to eat, thank a farmer. You right. know, so, I mean, there's, there's, yeah. there's just simple, it doesn't even have to be political. It's just, you, you just, you gotta, you gotta keep, keep these things in pe- fresh in people's minds right. when they're driving by because you, it's just important. It's well, no. simple, simple. Well, you also, know, you, you, you turn, and Chris, thanks for that. You, I mean, you, you turn people off if you let the signs get ratty, which I, I agree, which is a, a basis for, you know, maybe rotating them or things like that. But that's, that's a practical issue. There, there's also the bigger constitutional issue, which is, you know, do you have, 
do you have a right to do it? And does government have the right to come in and limit your ability to do it? And look, and this is coming from the perspective of somebody who, other than the time 20 plus years ago when I was running for, for office, I don't think we ever had a yard sign up in, in our yard. I just, I, I'm not a yard sign guy. And now, like I say, I live in an area where I live in a condo where you, you can't, you know, we, we can't put signs on our front lawn. But I don't think government should be telling individual homeowners what they can and cannot do with regard to political expressions. Now, if you want to worry about the guy that's got the, the, the broken down car that's all spread out and the three washing machines and the uh, refrigerator that's all laying in their front yard, well, that's a whole different story. <laughs> but but we're talking about political signs here. And, and I think, you know, this is one where, whether it's Mequon, which is apparently considering a dumb ordinance um, a week from now, or you know other communities, this is you're picking a fight that I don't believe you can win. You're picking a fight that you should not win, and you're picking a fight that if you go ahead and do it, is probably going to generate you know lawsuits that you will most likely lose and cost taxpayers a boatload of money in trying to defend the lawsuit. And the only people you're going to make you're going to really benefit are going to be the lawyers that you're going to have to pay to defend you. Think about that. Back with more in just a minute. Back for more. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. I have a friend who says there's two types of people in the world. People who like bacon and then people who lie when they say they don't like bacon. How can you not like bacon? I'm telling you, as far as I'm concerned, bacon should be a a food group. And yet, it is possible that by early next year, for all intents and purposes, you will not be able to order bacon in California. And if you do order bacon, you are going to be paying a lot more. And this is, no pun intended, this is chickens that are coming home to roost. In 2018... California passed rules that are designed to, well, enforce animal welfare rights and and regulations. And so that kicks in in January. So here's here's the deal. The the rules that will go into effect say that pork, which is sold in the state of California, must comply with with these various laws that they have have passed under the farm animal confinement proposition, Proposition 12. And what that says is that essentially pigs, which are going to be used to turn into bacon, it, it is the cycle of life, it is, it is food, that pigs must be housed in like 24 square foot pens to allow them to to turn around and there there's a number of of pigs that can be put in a particular pen but the pigs have to the pens have to be 24 square feet. Oh okay, that, that that's fine, except here's the problem. 95% of the pork which is sold in California is produced in our neighboring state of Iowa and almost all, if not all, of the pork industry in Iowa is non-compliant with this rule. 
For example, typical hog farm in Iowa, pigs are kept in open-air crates measuring 14 square feet when they join a herd. So you didn't know that. And then later on, they're, they're moved to largely 20-square-foot pens. But both are less than the 24 square feet required by California law. Um, they estimate that, like one farmer alone says, hey, look, th- these changes – If I had to do them, it would cost me about $3 million and allow room for 250 pigs in a space that now holds 300. He says the problem is, you know, to to do that, I'd have to to get an extra like $20 per pig to make up that cost. And he says there's no way that I'm going to be paid that. They estimate that uh, the increased cost to do something like this would take a pound of bacon from about 6 bucks to about $10. I mean, so you'd have a dramatic increase. But on top of that, it's probably going to be a lot more because, like I say, almost all of the pork, which is sold in California, comes from Iowa. So, you know, if Iowa does not change its habits to comply with what California wants, you'd have to kind of get your bacon from like sort of boutique hog producers, maybe like in California, and that's going to cause shortages and it's going to drive prices up even more. So we're now kind of at loggerheads because, you know, the Iowa beef market, the national beef market says that it just doesn't make any economic sense. We're we're not changing. And so in all likelihood, bacon may disappear from menus or at least go dramatically, the cost of it, dramatically through the roof in California. Okay, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, this is a situation where, I mean, California voters have decided, look, we, we, we think that the pigs that are being raised for slaughter so that we can eat them, you know, we, we think that they need to have, like, bigger crates that they're held in so they, they can turn around a little. Okay, that that's fine, and I'm sure that that sounds great, but let's face it. Life, if you are if you are born into life as, as a pig that is going to be bred for slaughter, well, all right, you know, it, it, it's, it's probably a relatively tough life anyways. Nobody is suggesting that animals like this should be abused, but at the same time, now California is faced with really a two-pronged choice. They can either continue to maintain these rules or they can watch bacon disappear from restaurants. They can watch the cost of bacon th- go through the roof. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, would something like this play in, in Wisconsin? I mean, is this an idea whose time has come? You know, bacon essentially disappearing because of these new pig rules put in place in one state. And with the state fair coming up later on this week, I think this is a particularly timely topic. 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. To me, this is one of these classic examples of unintended consequences. You know, the voters say, oh, well, well, this is nice. We, we think, we think that the pigs should have, you know, more room in their pens. And, and maybe you can make an argument for that. But the effect of it is, the economic issues are such that it ain't going to happen. And the reality is this means either the cost of bacon goes through the roof or bacon disappears in the state of California. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line only on the West Coast. I hope we discuss in a minute. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 
855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And, and I'm focusing on bacon, but, but this, this new law in California, if you're just tuning in, you know, California voters in, I, I guess, I don't know, a moment of, gee, we, we, we've got to be sensitive to animal rights, passed a proposition in 2018 that kicks in in January, which essentially says all pork products, so it's, I'm, I'm saying bacon, but pork chops, you know, a, any pork shoulders, you know, pork ribs, anything, any pork product which is sold in California, the underlying, where that pork comes from, the farms have to comply with various rules regarding the, the spacing, how much room the pigs that the pork comes from are confined in. And most of the pork in, from Cal, that California consumes, 95%, comes from Iowa. Almost no farms in Iowa comply with, with that. And Iowa beef is essentially saying that they're not going to. So for California, what that means is either, you know, pork is going to disappear from menus or alternatively, the cost is going to go up dramatically because the only pork producers will kind of like be boutique pork producers that will not be able to supply anywhere near as many pigs as they do from the slaughterhouses in Iowa, which means that the cost is going to be dramatically greater. It gets it's even more of a mess because the California rules create a challenge for the processors, for the slaughterhouses, because what typically happens is now when a hog is slaughtered, um, meat from the, the hog goes to goes to different sites all around the country. So you've got, you know, one, you've got one pig, you know, you've got Frank the pig, and Frank ends up, you know, getting butchered, and, you know, part of Frank might be sent to California, part of Frank might go to Texas, part of Frank might go to Milwaukee. It, it all depends on, you know, what the orders are. So now these slaughterhouses are going to have to divine, design some system that would track the beef the, the pork, I'm sorry, the pork that ends up going to California because if it came again from a, a farm that was non-compliant, which almost all are, you, you couldn't ship that there. So they're going to have to say, okay, where, di- where did this particular pig come from that was slaughtered? And now, you know, can we ship it to California? I think the effect of this is that a, a lot of producers are simply going to say, all right, we're, we're not even going to bother with this. You know, California, California is on our own. The analysts right now are predicting, first of all, that, that prices in California are going to just go through the roof because you've already had you have essentially a government created dramatic shortage so people aren't going to be able to get pork chops they're not going to be able to get bacon the cost of it is going to go up dramatically also what's going to happen is a lot of the restaurants and interestingly enough um particularly a lot of like the specialty restaurants like restaurants that specialize say in asian and hispanic dishes they, they typically include lots and lots of pork the, the concern is you're going to drive a lot of those restaurants out of business because what's going to happen is in order to continue producing you know putting the, the, their menu items out there it's their their only option is going to be to go and and try to locate the increasingly rare hogs that are raised in this fashion and they're going to have to end up raising their prices and in many cases to levels that they don't think it's going to be supported so this is going to be government driving i think a lot of restaurants particularly again a lot of these specialty restaurants they're, they're going to go out of business i mean i guess it's one thing if you own you know an italian restaurant and and pork chops are a big seller but you you can take pork 
off off of the, you could take the pork chop off the menu and you still have a number of items that you can produce or that you're you know going to be able to make substitutes for maybe you use uh, veal or maybe you make pork chop maybe you use pork for the meatballs you can change it a little you can do it but this is going to have a devastating effect and to what end see because at this bottom line is all right the the the, the pigs are are still going to be raised in the fashion that they're going to be raised in. And, and while nobody supports animal cruelty, the reality is if you're a, a pig that is being, I mean, raised for slaughter, well, you know, really, that's that's it. Um, Jeff, do they not realize, here's a text that makes a point, that farming is a businesses and businesses are in the agricultural industry to make money. Well, yeah, that's the that's the underlying thing. And it's one of these great things. You put this out as a proposition. Oh, you know, we think the pigs should have more room to turn around in their pens. Oh, all right. And I'm sure you can put together some compelling TV shots, you know, showing that. But the, the reality is to the pig farmer in Iowa who's trying to make a living and who says, hey, you know, it would cost me tens of millions of dollars to change my operation in this fashion. And there's no way I could ever recover that money. So unless this becomes a trend and unless other states decide that they are going to follow the California model, California is going to be an island, I, I think, unto itself where, you know, bacon and eggs disappears from the market. Jeff, government is becoming the pig police. You know, really? <laughs> um, yes, <laughs> that's that's exactly it. Jeff, this will put a lot of Iowa farmers out of business. California is a huge market to lose. Well, I think that's that's the situation that, you know, the, a lot of these farming communities are going to find themselves in. California, my understanding is, consumes about 15 percent of the nation's pork. So the Iowa farmers are in a situation of having to essentially make a financial commitment that is going to drive them into bankruptcy or alternatively um, ignore the California market. You know, it's a no-win situation. But the point is, it's it's to me, it is completely and totally unnecessary. And it's one of these examples, again, of this government sort of overreach. Jeff, let them eat their tofu burgers and drink their spring water. Well, yeah, you've got that um, aspect that's there. Jeff, let California go without bacon. More pork for the rest of the country and more pork for a smaller market might mean lower prices for us. Their policy makes as much sense as not being allowed to put live lobsters in boiling water. Yeah, well, you got that as well. So here's the bottom line of all this. This is right now is just in California. But when you hear the story about, hey, you know, bacon might disappear for the menu, it, it it's real. It is a real issue that is out there as a result of the government. And this is, you're going to start to see this in other things as well, whether it's auto emissions, that this idea that we're going to have this massive government control, which is going to dictate major changes in the way you live. No thanks. You know the phrase, life imitates art? Well, there's a classic example of that. Remember a number of years ago, there was the movie Fargo, and it spawned a couple seasons of a TV series. But the premise of the movie Fargo by the Coen brothers um, was that you you had a guy. He was a, a car salesman in North Dakota. 
and is, or Brainerd, Minnesota, I think is actually where he was. So he was a car salesman. Anyhow, he had, he had fallen behind and owed all this money and stuff. So he cooked up the, this scheme where he hired these guys and they were going to come and they were going to kidnap his, his wife. And the plan was that they'd kidnap the wife and then her rich father would pony up the ransom money and the guy would take the ransom money and he'd split it with the kidnappers and all of a sudden he'd get the money he needed to bail himself out of his financial problems. And and the movie is how this thing completely and totally falls apart. And it's a it's a dark comedy, but it you know, it, it's there there's parts of it that are funny, but still it, it's one of these things that's difficult to watch. But you watch it and you think, okay, th- this was not a well thought out scheme. All right. Here's the story today. Life imitating art. He hired two men to kidnap his wife. They ended up drowning. Lawrence Handley, 53, a business executive from Lafayette, Louisiana, pled guilty this week to three criminal charges after a plot to kidnap his estranged wife went badly awry. Shonda Handley was at home with her daughter and a neighbor when two men showed up at the door dressed in what looked like blue uniforms from an appliance store. They had a carpet steamer. They asked her if she could, if they could demonstrate it for her. When she said no, the men forced their way into her house at gunpoint, put a hood over her head, which is exactly what happened in Fargo, handcuffed her and her neighbor. They pushed her into a van and drove off, leaving the 14-year-old daughter and the neighbor behind. Um, the kidnappers had been hired by Ms. Handley's estranged husband, Lawrence Handley, who was planning to have her driven to his camp near Woodville, Mississippi, from her home in Lafayette, Louisiana. What he planned to do after that was not clear, authority said. As the men drove east on the interstate, Ms. Handley handcuffed in the back. Sheriff's deputies noticed the van was swerving and tried to stop it. The two men drove off the interstate, turned down a dead-end gravel road, were penned in by police. Both men tried to escape by swimming through a canal. They drowned. (laughs) I mean, it's not funny, but it's like, okay, really? And then uh, four years later, Mr. Hanley pled guilty to two counts of second-degree kidnapping, one count of attempted second-degree things. He's looking at probably like 15 to 35 years in prison. Um, His ex-wife said in an interview that it was really unfortunate that uh, he would not face the possibility of life in prison. My hope is when he's sentenced, he's given 35 years. Bottom line of all this is this is Fargo in real life. Here, my I'm estranged from my ex-wife. I'm going to hire these yo-yos to kidnap her. And then the whole thing starts to fall apart. If this guy would have spent a couple hours, perhaps in the movie theater, he would have recognized that this was not a well-thought-out plan. Life imitating art. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, Melissa, do you ever wonder what the story is behind songs? You, know, you, you hear that, you kind of hear a song, and you wonder what, wonder what motivated people to write that song. I and think stuff about like that, that all the time, yeah. Right, where, where did that, that song come from? Okay. Now, this is perhaps before your time. Uh, Ricky Lee Jones, who is kind of an acquired taste, but but I, I like Ricky Lee Jones. Okay, this this was her big hit. This was her first song that really took off in 1979. Saying I'm 
that song. You're right. Chucky's in love. Chucky's in love. Oh, okay, it's Chucky's in love. They're actually, there is a real Chucky. It's a Chuck. It's, it's Ch- Chuck E. Right. Like it's like, like the last Chuck, name E. Well, right. Or, or the middle in it. Right. Actually, yeah, yeah. it's his middle initial. There's a real Chuck. His, 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 the guy's name is Chuck E. Weiss. Well, he died. Oh, <laughs> no, but, but, oh poor Chucky. But, well, well, here, but I mean, yeah. so here, here's kind of the story behind this. In the, um, Ricky Lee Jones was, was sort of a, is, I mean, I don't know how, right now, but I mean, back, back in the 60s and 70s, she was kind of a, sort of a beatnik type of person after the beatniks weren't, weren't necessarily in fashion. Mm-hmm. And she was hanging around Los Angeles and she used to hang out at this, at this folk club. And she got involved with a musician, a musician named Tom Waits, who's, um, he's done a lot of stuff. His, he's got an album called Nighthawks at the Diner that I absolutely love. But Tom Waits is also like a real acquired taste. But, so what happened is they were apparently in. They, so Tom Waits, Ricky Lee Jones, and this Chucky Weiss. He was a dishwasher at the the club, this Troubadour Club, mm-hmm. and apparently the three of them like took up residence together in some like seedy motel or something in, in Los Angeles. And back in the day, the Troubadour was the place to be for a musician. A lot of really really big musicians started started there, and then right, which is became, the, which was the huge. folk club. Yeah, mm-hmm. which was the the folk club. There were a couple places, you know, like like the Whiskey a Go Go was yes. another mm-hmm. one. All those things, but there was the Troubadour. So anyhow, this is Chuck E. Was the the three of them kind of hung out together? And the story behind that song is apparently. The Tom Waits and Chuck E. Weiss were on, on the road and they call back in, um, they, they call back, um, on, on a trip home and, uh, Tom Waits says to Ricky Lee Jones, Chuck E's in love. <laughs> and that was the inspiration <laughs> the for the, the song. So he was, he was just immortalized. Um, anyways, he passed away. <laughs> but Aww, that was poor the, guy. But, no. but that's, that's kind of the history <laughs> behind this. I was watching, you know, um, I was watching this thing on HBO a while back with the late Carrie Fisher, you know, who's Star yes. Wars. And mm-hmm. stuff like that, and and um, she was Debbie Reynolds's daughter, mm-hmm. and she was also for a time married to Paul Simon. And what uh, she she tells this story about how as their marriage was kind of falling apart, Paul Simon wrote this song about her, and she's like, well, you know, she said this is advice: if you ever have a chance to have Paul Simon write a song about you. Do it, <laughs> you know, and, that's, and so I'm thinking that was cool. I'm sure Chucky e. Weiss felt the same way. That's you know, a nice you, compliment it, to have someone write a song about you, right? And then yeah. you're, that, that becomes like immortalized, right? Yeah. Exactly. So whenever you think hear the song Chucky's in love, it's a real song, and um, right, the guy he passed away over the weekend. So or, it's, whenever I would hear that song, or I would think it was Chucky, like Chucky was the guy's name. No, but it's, it's Chuck E. Chuck E. Weiss was <laughs> yeah. was his actual was, was his full mm-hmm. name. So it's like Chucky. I saw Ricky Lee Jones in concert gosh it was a long time ago and it was at the riverside but this is this is decades ago and um she was she was a difficult performer it was one of those things where it's almost uncomfortable because she was she didn't seem happy to be there and she was like yelling at the band and she was yelling at the audience and she was yelling at the sound people and stuff she was it, it was it was one of these kind of awkward things. It was actually, I mean, I re- I've seen a lot of concerts, and there's a lot of, I, I don't remember. I remember this one because she was so uh, high-strung. She was not in a good mood. She was yeah. not happy to be there. Things were not going right for her that night, and she was letting everybody know about it. So, so I wasn't familiar with Ricky Lee Jones' music until recently. I got People Magazine in the mail, 
And it had about her story about how she walked away from fame. And then I kind of started looking up her music on Apple Music. And I was like, wow, I I actually do like her music. But, you know, she's really doesn't perform that much anymore. And I think she struggled with uh, quite a few things. Yeah. Substance abuse and and stuff like that. Yeah, you would think that. But, um, yeah, well, she had, you know, and, and she actually she wrote a couple other songs that, um, for example, what a fool believes. I think she wrote that. Oh. The Doobie Brothers made it famous, but yes, I think she wrote she that. She also wrote Last Chance Texaco. I don't know if you remember that yes, one. Yes, I do. Yes, she wrote that one or sang it. So you, you but you always I just it's always so cool. I, I just love okay, where did that song lyric come from? It's like we were talking about a while back the the ultimate trivia, the, <laughs> Chicago. Yeah. You know their song 25 or 6 to 4. Mm-hmm. And you know everybody's like what does 25 or 6 to 4 mean? And it, it, it's just it's it's the clock. It's like the guy who was writing it is up at his kitchen table trying to come up with song lyrics, and it's late at night. It's like three thirty-five, and he's looking at the clock, and it's twenty-five or six, six. twenty-five or twenty-six mm-hmm. to four. So it's like three thirty-five or three thirty-four. That's that's what it is. Twenty-five or six to four. It's as simple as that. It's as simple, right? And everybody was. It was so funny because you know you read the history of the song and people are they've got all these different theories about who's this and who's that. And it's, no, it's, it was the clock. So you know how we're really good at trivia, Jeff. This is this is just you know makes the point that it's useless trivia that will never useless do us but any important good, information. But we yes. like it. Yeah. <laughs> useless but yes. important information. All right. When we come back. Who pays? I'll explain. We'll discuss. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Okay, I'm getting all these texts. People saying, okay, you, you said that Paul Simon wrote a song about Carrie Fisher. What was the song? Was it 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover? No, um, it was his song called She Moves On which is uh, on the Rhythm of the Saints album. But uh, it, 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 she always, that's always safe. If you ever get a chance to have somebody like Paul Simon write a song for you, do it. All right. In, we're we're going to talk about mandatory vaccinations in a little bit. But before that, what in a number of workplaces, the em- employers are trying to reach a compromise with employees who decline to get vaccinated. Obviously, employers, in most cases, they would prefer their employees get vaccinated because that then we 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 understand that even with all the mumbo jumbo coming out of the CDC and the mixed messages, your chances of getting covid again, Delta variant or not, if you are vaccinated, are a lot, 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 lot less than they are if you are unvaccinated. On top of that, if you are vaccinated and you are one of the rare breakthrough cases, your chance of um, being hospitalized or dying from COVID are extremely, extremely rare. So that's the justification for encouraging people to, to get vaccinated. But for whatever reasons, there's a number of people who are making a decision not to get vaccinated. So what is an employer to do? Well, some employers have just decided, particularly in the healthcare industry, if you want to work here, you've got to get vaccinated. That That's the simple thing. You have until September 1st, you have until October 1st, you have until November 1st, you have to be vaccinated. If you are not vaccinated, um, you're going to be terminated. That That's what some employers have taken. Other employers have taken sort of a, a middle ground approach, and that's kind of what the federal government has done. The federal government has said, 
We want you to get vaccinated. But if you do not get vaccinated, what's going to happen is there is going to be additional levels, requirements that you have to comply with. For example, you will have to wear a mask everywhere. All right. Let's not talk about masks for a minute, but that's one of the requirements. One of the other rules is going to be you will have to be COVID tested once a week. Once every two weeks, once every you know X number of days. So that's the idea that if, if you're not going to be vaccinated, you can still keep your job, but be prepared to be tested. All right. On a regular basis. All right. Now, here's the issue that our employers are facing. These tests are not inexpensive. Doctors typically charge about 50 to 100 dollars for a, a covid tests okay and maybe you know i know that there's some like at home tests and stuff that are a little bit cheaper but still you know you're talking about let's say 50 bucks maybe it's 35 maybe it's 75 but just for the sake of our discussion let's say let's say 50 bucks now federal law requires insurers to cover tests when they're ordered by a health care provider all right so you go in you're, you're presenting symptoms you know, you, you get, you get checked out. Gee, I've got a sore throat. I've, I've kind of, I got a fever a little bit. You know, I, I want to determine that. Well, if, if the doctor orders it, the insurer has to cover it. But routine workplace tests are exempt from, from that provision. So if as a regular course of business, you've got to get tested every week because you have not gotten vaccinated. All right. Here's the question. Who should pay for that? Should the employer eat the cost? If the employer says you've got to be tested every week and the test, again, let's use $50. Maybe it's a little more. Maybe it's a little less. But let's say it's 50 bucks. Should employers have to pay for that testing? Now, they're requiring it. But um, or should the employee as a condition of the employee's job, should they pay for it? Now, the federal government, at least right now, they will pay the costs of the weekly testing. But but that's the federal government. That's us taxpayers at work. So let's tee this up, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If the employer puts in the rule that says, all right, you've got to be tested every week, should the employer then pay for the test? Or alternatively, if the employee says, well, the reason I got to take the test is I've made the decision not to get vaccinated, is it then on the employee to pick up the cost of the weekly test? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'll tell you where I come down on this in a couple minutes, but this is one where I, I really do want to get a react your reaction. Who should pay, the employer or the employee, for those tests that are being given because somebody has made the decision not to be vaccinated. Who picks up the tab? 855-616-1620. What do you think? We discuss in a minute. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. Okay. All right. The employer says if, if you're not vaccinated... You're going to have to go through testing every week. We're going to do we're going to go do a COVID test for you, for, and then just to prove that you you don't show up positive. Well, th- those things cost money. So the question becomes: All right, who who picks up the tab for that? If we say the average COVID test is fifty bucks, now the way the law works is if it's ordered by a healthcare provider, insurance has to cover it. 
but but routine workplace examinations like that are not covered by the law. So it's a question of what the employer wants to do. Who should pay for this under these circumstances? Let's start with Paul in Milwaukee. Paul, you're on WTMJ. Hello, this is Paul. Hi, Paul. What do you think? Who should pay? Uh, I think the employer is uh, forcing this requirement on. They should pay. And the other part I can't understand is uh, it seems like a lot of people that have been vaccinated are catching and spreading this disease uh, in Major League Baseball. You see mm-hmm. it in uh, actually the Democrats that uh, fled to Texas. Uh, it should be required of everybody if they're going to require it. Okay. Well, thank, well, matter of fact, we'll, we'll we'll get to that a little bit later on the program. But Paul says the employer should pay. Um, and and again, let me. Uh, for example, if you want to work for this company, I mean, I, I think I think it's still the, the rule. But if you want to work for this company, you have to be drug tested. And a lot of companies have that rule. And so, you know, any hiring decision is based on, you know, it's it's conditioned on passing a drug test. At least that's the way it, it used to be when we were scripts and journal and probably is now. And so you, you go down to the facility. Now, the employees or potential employees, they don't pay for the cost of the drug test. The, the company eats that. Is this the same for routine stuff? 855-616-1620. Jeff, the employer needs to pay as the vaccine or testing negative was not terms of employment when the employee was originally hired. Jeff, there's not a doubt in my mind that the employees need to pay for this. If you make a choice during a public health crisis to not assist in the resolution, you should be the one paying the price. Jeff, employers should pay 100%. If the flu shot isn't mandated, then the vaccine should shouldn't be. Okay, as you can tell, I'm being swamped with texts, and we're, we're all over the map on this as to who should end up paying for this. Like I say, for the federal government, they've already decided they're, they're going to pay for the, the weekly costs of, of doing this. Um, to give you an example of a private employer, for example, MGM, you know, the big casino corporation, MGM for non-vaccinated people is requiring weekly testing. And what they're saying is you've got two choices. You can do it through us, and you will have a $15 copay. We'll, we'll pick up the cost, but there's a $15 copay through your insurance. Alternatively, if you don't want that, you can go out and you can do it yourself, in which case you pay for it all. <laughs> so um, it, it's that kind of balancing act. I, I don't know that I've found any employers who are made the decision right now that it's going to be on you, that you as the employee have to bear the full cost. I, I guess I guess here's the deal. I think if the employers are going to require this, just like if you got to go get a drug test, the employer is going to pay for that. I, I think the employers have an obligation to pay the, the lion's share of this. The copay, that's a kind of a different story. Maybe that's all right. But I, I think if you want to do this, I mean, I think the employers have the responsibility for paying for it because that is that is a requirement that they are putting on you to do. Whether they do it or not moving forward, don't know. I don't think there's any legal requirement that they do a- at all. But this is going to be one of these other issues that's going to happen moving forward as more and more employers as a compromise to people not getting vaccinated, try to say, okay, if you're not going to get vaccinated, you've got to do these other things. Don't be surprised if some employers say, fine, you're also going to have to pay for this as well. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. There is a piece 
Um, in the local newspaper today, it's in the print edition and it's online, which is actually, it's worth the price of admission for, for today because it, it answers a question that a lot of us had about the Packers. Remember last week, whatever day it was, the, maybe it was a week ago that you had the, uh, Aaron Rodgers did the press conference and Aaron Rodgers, it was kind of like Festivus from Seinfeld. It was sort of the airing of the grievances and he was talking about how he, he felt he had been disrespected by not having more input on personnel and how you had a lot of these players who were, were let go after making contributions to the team and it was just, it was, it was wrong and they weren't treated appropriately and he, he rattled off a list of names and interestingly enough, you know, one, one of the reporters at the time, and I, I give the reporter credit, whoever it was, you know, says, well, you know, a lot of these players that were let go, they, they probably should have been let go. And Rogers kind of, you know, blew past that. Oh, no, you know, we should have had input. And like Jordy Nelson could have, he could have caught a lot more passes if I was throwing them to him and stuff. So interestingly, Tom Silverstein in today's Journal Sentinel, he, he goes through a list of the different players that Rogers rattled off. And the inescapable conclusion of this is that Aaron Rodgers, as great as he is as a quarterback, would have been an absolutely lousy general manager. And that's because, you know, general managers have to make the, these tough decisions. And you can't simply say, gee, I want to surround myself with my buddies. I, I want to, I, especially in the world of sports, where as people tend to get more experience and become more higher, more highly paid, and there's salary caps, and yeah, candidly, yes, if they had kept a couple aging veterans, maybe they wouldn't have had as much money as they needed to, to pay Aaron Rodgers. But anyhow, it, this, the piece by Silverstein goes through the list of the people that, you know, Rodgers rattled off, and with one or two exceptions, kind of comes to the conclusion and makes a compelling argument that the, the Packers got it right on all these. He, I mean, he goes through, for example, you know, Randall Cobb, who had had a great career with the Packers, but he was injury prone. He was due, his contract was up. He was due for, you know, big payments, and his performance had, had decreased. And it talks about how, you know, he, he went on and had, you know, one year with Dallas, but then, you know, um, you know, took a took a real hit after that. Clay Matthews. We all love Clay Matthews. Clay Matthews is a difference maker, but you know, Clay Matthews was sort of at the end of his career. He was due he was an unstricted free free agent. He was going to turn thirty three. His performance had been going downhill. He wasn't the player he was at twenty eight, and that's that's a difficult thing to say. But you know, if you look at what happened afterwards, the Packers were right. You know, Jordy Nelson. I mean, Jordy Nelson was a great player, but by releasing him, they cleared $10 million in salary cap, which gave them the ability to, you know, go out and, and bring in some other players and hire them. And, you know, um, Nelson, again, was kind of at the end of his career. Charles Woodson was a player they list. And, you know, he says, look, this, this was a, this was a difficult one because Charles Wilson w- was due $10 million. And the Packers let him go because they weren't going to pay him ten million. He ultimately re-signed for Oakland for one point eight million, and you know went on to have a couple of good years. But the, the Packers couldn't pay him ten million, so it's a tougher one. Then it goes on. James Jones and John Kuhn, the two that uh, Silverstein concludes were you know, probably mistakes, were defensive backs Micah Hyde and Casey Hayward. But other than that, that you go Julius Peppers, Brian Balaga, all these people were aging veterans who were due huge amounts of, of money. And 
were probably on on the tail end of their careers. It, look, Julius Peppers was a great player as linebacker, but you know he was going to command top money for a guy that was really sort of a part time player, and the Packers. Didn't have that money to pay him because if they paid him, there'd be all sorts of other players like the the up and coming guys that you couldn't pay. Same thing for for Brian Belaga, who was sort of great player, great locker room presence, but was what it was at the end of of his career and had been kind of plagued by injuries and would have commanded a huge amount of money. So it's it's an interesting read that kind of breaks it down and. The conclusion is kind of what I thought at, at the time, and it's. I understand athletes hate being told to just like shut up and dribble. I, I I get that, but I do think athletes in general, anybody in different jobs, you got to stay in your lane. And there's different. If you're the general manager, you have different concerns than a player has, and you have a, a broader sort of picture. And I get why a player wants to surround himself with people that are friends and people that are positive locker room influences and things like that. But the general manager, the team ownership, they got to think about the the big picture. And it's not just, gee, um, you know, can we squeeze one more year out of a guy? It's all right. How much is this going to cost us? What's this going to do to the rest of the team? And the interesting point is, you know, Aaron Rodgers off a lot of money. If if they had kept some of the players that he thought they should have kept, well, they might not have had enough money to pay him, and I doubt that he would have liked that. Okay, when we come back, is it time to say enough is enough? Get the shot. I'll explain. We'll discuss. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So far, the absolute mandates that you must get a vaccine or you're out of a job so far, that has come in the private sector. You see a number of healthcare, including healthcare facilities around here, uh, providers who are are making that requirement. In addition, late last week, a couple of big companies, Disney Company, you know, Disney announced that um, employees have to be vaccinated, period. Disney said salaried and non-union hourly U.S. employees at their sites must be fully vaccinated. Unvaccinated workers who are already on site will have 60 days to get the immunization. But if you haven't gotten it within 60 days, boom, that's it. Walmart, which is the nation's largest private employer, said vaccines would be mandatory for employees at their headquarters and for managers who travel to the United States. The mandate doesn't apply to employees in in stores and distribution things. But if, if you're Walmart corporate, you no excuses. You have to get the, the vaccine or else you are going to you know lose your job. And there's a number of other private employers that are, are following suit so far that the federal government has avoided mandatory vaccines. Well, there's I'm looking Washington Post over the weekend. Here's the, the opinion. The uh, by the deputy editorial page editor opinion require the vaccine. It's time to stop coddling the reckless. Pay people to get vaccinated, no matter whether that is unfair to those who didn't receive checks for jabs. Require them to do it as a condition of going to work or enrolling in school. Do whatever it takes. And recent weeks have shown it's going to take steps like this to get the pandemic under control. Those of us who have behaved responsibly, wearing masks, and since the vaccines became available, getting our shots cannot be held hostage by those who can't be bothered to do the same 
or who are too deluded by misinformation to understand what is so clearly in their own interest. The more inconvenient we make life for the unvaccinated, the better our own lives will be. More important, the fewer who will needlessly die. We cannot ignore the emerging evidence that the Delta variant is transmissible, even by those who have been fully vaccinated. The war has changed, said the CDC. President Biden recognized this new reality with his actions Thursday. He announced that federal employees must be vaccinated or masked up and submit to continuing proof that they are not infected. If anything, Biden did not go far enough. He should have imposed a tighter mandate on federal workers and contractors. No frequent testing is an alternative. He should have required vaccines for airline and railroad travel. He should have mandated vaccines for member of the military rather than kicking the can down the weeks for, down the road for a few weeks. If I sound exasperated, I am, and I don't think I'm going, I'm alone. And then it goes on and on. But the premise of the editorial writer is enough is enough. It's time to mandate vaccinations uh, essentially for everything that you have to do in life. If you want to travel on a plane, you have to be vaccinated. If you want to travel on a railroad, you have to be vaccinated. If you want to work for the federal government, you have to be vaccinated. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I have always believed, and this is, I am vaccinated. I've said that a lot. I, I have no problem with it. I, I encourage people to, to get vaccinated. I've always believed, though, that you can be pro-vaccination and, and anti-vaccine mandate. But a lot of people don't see it that way. So 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is it time to stop monkeying around with this? Is it time for the government to say, you must be vaccinated? And I guess the way the government could enforce it is not sending people door to door to check on vaccinations, but saying that before you can engage in typical things that people engage in, you must provide proof that you are vaccinated, essentially forcing people to do it in that fashion. You want to fly on a plane. You got it. It's it's no it's no covid test before you get on. It's you have to be vaccinated. You have to prove it. You want to get on a train. You have to do that. You want to get on a bus. You have to do it. 855-616-1620. Is it time to force mandatory vaccinations on people? We discuss. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, let, let's cut to the chase. Should the government mandate vaccines? Right now, the government has encouraged people to get vaccines, and you, I think you're you're probably close to around sixty percent. But clearly, the number of people getting vaccinated has slowed down. The number of COVID cases are are up. Right, a lot of people think, and I read an editorial from the Washington Post where they're saying, look, it's time to stop monkeying around. It's time to say people have to get vaccinated. Or if you don't get vaccinated, you're not going to be able to indulge in, in most aspects of, of life. You're not going to be able to fly on a plane. You're not going to be able to get on a bus. You're not going to be able to take a train. You, you would extend this. For me, and, and this is somebody who's pro-vaccine, I think you can logically be pro-vaccine. Yes, I think you should get it. At the same time, though, not thinking the government has the right to mandate people to do it. I wish more people would get vaccinated. I, I do. But I, I guess I'm, I'm worried that the government, 
I, I do not think the government has the right to come in and tell individuals that you, you have to do this as a condition of, of living life. 855-616-1620. Let's start with um, Ken. And, oh, Ken, you're on WTMJ. Hey, good afternoon. Uh, Dick, Hi, Ken. Dick, am I calling? Sure. I, I, I agree with your point as far as you know, mandating it, especially in the private industry and such. But it was interesting to note that the Medical College of Wisconsin CEO said, oh, yes, all of our people have to get vaccinated by November sometime. Right. right. Well, if this, is a, if this is important, especially in a medical uh, setting, wouldn't you, think they, wouldn't you think they could get this done a lot sooner than November? Well, I think what they're doing, well, thanks to call. I mean, I, I think what they're doing, matter of fact, I, I have a, a friend who works not, not at that point, not at that uh, for that company, but same situation. You know, her employer has told her you have until November first to get vaccinated. She is unvaccinated at this point, and I think it, it's done to give people an opportunity. They're giving them a little time. I mean, right now there's all these different added rules. I think that you have to go through like the constant testing, but you know they're giving people some time to make that decision, recognizing that you're, you're going to lose some people because I mean, there's going to be some people who are just going to quit their jobs and say, "All right, I, I'm going to go end up working somewhere." else. Okay, here's a text. Jeff, I'm a health care provider. I could not agree more with the sentiment that we need to have mandatory vaccinations. If we don't get it under control now, we're going to be back to more variants, and then we will never get this under control. My problem with that is that how, how far, how much authority does government have? Government can say, all right, if you're if you're not vaccinated, if you don't have the measles vaccination, okay, your kids can't come to public schools. Oh, okay, I, I understand that. You put limits in an effort to try to force people to do what you want them to do. That's how government has always operated. That's how that's why we have a uniform twenty one year old drinking age across the country, because the the drinking age is set each state. But if, for example, Wisconsin were to allow the drinking age to be 18 or 19, they'd lose all this federal highway money and they can't afford to do it. So government has always been able to force people to do things or to urge people to do things by using this, this carrot that's there. I have no problem with people getting vaccinated, and I think that's the way to go. But I do not believe it is the government's role to go to somebody and say, "Okay, look, we're going to force you to do this against your will or else you're not going to be able to you know, live life. Now, there's other things you can say. All right. Look, if if you're going to fly on a plane and you're not vaccinated, you're going to have to jump through all sorts of hoops. Okay, I, I get that. And I don't have a problem with that. Because that's a decision, but that's different than being mandated. I think you would potentially have a civil war in this country if you were to say to the people who have not been vaccinated at this point in time, and many of those folks aren't just Republicans in red-leaning rural states, but they're members of, of minority groups in inner cities all across this country. I think you'd have a civil war if you tried to force it. It is, in fact, unenforceable. So I, I don't think we should try to pick that particular fight. We should continue to encourage people to get vaccinated by saying, look, that that's ultimately the way out of this pandemic. But forcing it, no way. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So the Brewers have brought back John Axford, who is a name from the past. Axford uh, played his first five seasons in Major League Baseball with the Brewers 
Um, but he, he left in 2013, and um, you know, incredibly successful then. To give you a perspective, though, just to, to put this kind of story in some sort of perspective, the, the Major League Baseball trading deadline was Friday. So you say, okay, well, how, how could they have gotten him? It's after the trade. Well, it, it's because in Major League Baseball, the teams have what they call 40-man rosters, and, and those those are the kind of Major League players that they have under control. Um, John Axford was not on the Toronto Blue Jays 40 man roster. And so, uh, it's, they, the, the major league trading deadline doesn't stop minor league players from moving back and forth. And as long as you're not on the 40 man roster, apparently there's an exception to the rule. So you can trade, you can continue to trade minor leaguers. And in this particular case, they just gave Toronto some money for, for Axford. Um, the Brewers, have a shortage of players right now because you've got two of their, actually three of their players, um, pitchers are in the COVID relief protocols. Two of them tested positive and one was identified with contact tracing that is, is being positive. So as he's in, he, contact tracing says he has to sit out, not that he's positive. So they, they've lost players. They're, they're short of pitchers at the bottom line. So they're bringing Axford in. My guess is it's going to be a, a short duration sort of thing. He, he's 38 years old. To give you an, an idea, um, at the start of this season, his job, was he a starter? Was he a middle reliever? Was he a reliever? No, he, he was a studio analyst for, for the Blue Jays. And then, uh, he started pitching for Team Canada in the Olympics qualifier. And then at the end of June, Toronto signed him to a minor league deal. And so now, you know, Toronto has sold him to the Brewers. And the Brewers, again, they, they need a couple live bodies and they brought him up. And, you know, it would be nice if he could have a little bit of a resurgent. He could give him a couple innings. My guess is this is sort of a short term sort of deal, but the way they were able to bring him up is because he wasn't on anybody's major league roster. So um, they'll bring him in, and, and hopefully, hey, if he can give him a couple decent innings, um, that that would be just absolutely tremendous. The Brewers, by the way, are the real deal. Um, continue to be seven games ahead of Cincinnati. And, you know, if you're a Cincinnati Reds fan, it's got to be incredibly frustrating because since the All-Star break, the Cincinnati Reds have the best record in baseball, and yet... Um, they, they're still, what, I think losing ground to the Brewers or haven't picked up any ground on the Brewers. They're, they're seven games behind because the Brewers keep winning. Cincinnati keeps winning, but they're, they're not catching up. It's gotta be incredibly frustrating. And it is a tribute to the Brewers. 20 games over 500. Big series, uh, in Atlanta winning two out of three. And Atlanta's a good team. Now they come home against Pittsburgh and San Francisco. And you can hear all the games here on WTMJ. All right. This this program, one of the recurring themes today has been you know, the government telling businesses or individuals what they can and, and cannot do. We talked last segment about the, the vaccine mandate in the first hour of the program. I, I told you about this um, law that is going into effect in California in January, which will essentially mean that that Californians aren't going to be able to buy bacon and pork chops or things like that anymore because the, the way it works is it'll be illegal to sell pork products in California that were raised where, for example, the pigs were raised in uh, conditions, confinement conditions, like they raised the pigs in Iowa, which is where 95% of the pork comes from. So uh, people in California essentially aren't going to be able to get access to bacon and pork chops anymore, 
or if they do, they're going to have to pay really through the roof because it's going to come from boutique purchasers. So that's another example of government regulations. And I started off the program by telling you the story out of Mequon, where uh, next week the Common Council is going to be considering an ordinance where the government would tell you how many political yard signs you could have on your property, which, again, I, I think is just outrageous. I mean, if 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 you want to have multiple yard signs on your property, it seems to me that should be your right. And I mean, if I were a local government, I, I'd worry about, you know, uh, broken down refrigerators and, you know, broken down cars being in people's driveway. But political yard signs just I, I, I don't think that's government's role to do it. Well, here's another story like that here in the Midwest. We have long, cold winters, right? We depend on our furnaces for heat. And the vast majority of heating, for example, in Wisconsin, comes from natural gas. Natural gas is clean. It is cheap. It is efficient. It's a great way to heat homes. In other states, for example, if if you own a place in Florida, there's a very, very good chance that you're you're not on a natural gas line. There's a very, very good chance that it's all electric. You you don't need in, in Florida. You need air conditioning, and that can be electric. And maybe you've got a heat pump for those days when it does get into the 30s or 40s, and, and that runs on electricity. So, for example, in a lot of the southern states, natural gas isn't a big thing. It's it's electricity. But natural gas is a very, very big thing in the Midwest and the Northeast, and in the um, you know in the western part of the country where You need clean, efficient, cheap energy. Well, I bring this up because one of the things that government is now trying to do is ban natural gas connections to homes. I, I, I do not make this up, and there's a story in the Wall Street Journal today about Massachusetts, but, but here, let me share a story from a month ago. A growing fight is unfolding across the U.S. as cities consider phasing out national natural gas for home cooking and heating, citing concerns about climate change. Major cities, including San Francisco, Seattle, Denver, and New York, have either enacted or proposed measures to ban or discourage the use of fossil fuel in new homes. Two years ago, Berkeley passed the first such prohibition in the United States. And then it says the ban has in turn led states like Arizona, Texas, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Kansas, and Louisiana to enact laws out lawing these municipal prohibitions. But the movement now is to try to force people away from natural gas and to electricity, with the idea being natural gas, and they they estimate that, you know, when it comes to, like, quote-unquote, climate change and and greenhouse gas emissions, about 13% come from home heating and home cooking. So the idea is if we can force people to not use natural gas and force them into electricity, well, the world will be, the environment will be a cleaner place. Our number, 855-616-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Natural gas, it is clean, it is plentiful, it is efficient, and in my opinion, it is crazy for governments to try to discourage and or prevent and or ban people from using natural gas to cook and especially using natural gas to heat their homes. Talk about something that really isn't government's business, this 
is an example. 855-616-1620. You ready to give up your natural gas? I'm not. We discuss in a minute. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, so th- th- this this is this is where we're going in this country, and it's more and more regulations, and it's more and more people deciding that we're going to be told by government regulations as to how we can live. And one of the things that really should get the attention of everybody, particularly that lives in Wisconsin and the Upper Midwest and the Northeast you know, places where it gets cold in the winter, there is this movement afoot to ban natural gas for new homes. That That's that's the idea. So um, the premise being, well, natural gas, despite the fact that it's plentiful, despite the fact that it's efficient, despite the fact that it is cheap comparatively, well, it, it pollutes more than, than electricity. So what we should do is we should require people to heat their homes with electricity, well, okay, look at what that's going to cost and then require them to supplement with wind power or solar power or whatever, which may work fine in, I don't know, may work fine in a place, I don't know, where you have more temperate weather, but isn't going to help you in Wisconsin when it's February and you're looking at day after cloudy day and the temperature is a wind chill of 10 degrees below zero. It's this cluelessness that exists. 855-616-1620. Jeff, natural gas is a big thing throughout the U.S. and there are more and more power plants using natural gas because the government doesn't want to use coal right see that's that's the the whole thing the 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 idea is you know how are we going to power things i mean just take a minute look around where you are now if you're not driving just look around your house my guess is if you look at all the different things that surround you that that require electricity and my guess is there's a lot more of them that you're looking at than there might have been if you were doing the same exercise 15 or 20 years ago i mean whether it's the TV monitors, whether it's the clocks, whether it's the computers that everybody has, all these different things, they all require electricity to operate. So that, that electricity has to come from somewhere. It has to be generated by something. And in many cases, yeah, it's the natural gas that powers the electric plant. See, this is the thing when it comes to the whole idea of of electric cars and i understand there's some of you that think electric cars are the greatest thing since canned beer and that we should all be driving them and there's others of us who say well we kind of like the internal combustion engine and as long as you know gas is relatively cheap you know we'll continue to to drive those but but that's the idea but at the same time you know, if we go to more electric cars, what's that going to mean? That means that there's going to have to be more electricity to power those cars. And so that means that you're going to have to have lots more transmission lines. It means you're going to have lots more power plants and bigger power plants and and all those things. You know, that's it. Jeff, some of our electricity is generated with natural gas. Um, yes. I mean, that's, that's kind of the reality of all this. Jeff, if they want to ban national gas usage, we should demand that in summertime, those cities that are warm, they should not run air conditioners. Um, yeah. See, but this is government deciding, you know, what's best. Like I say, if you live in a warm weather climate, you if you have a place in Florida, you prop them. Well, 
I, I think they're, they're, the odds are probably better than even that you don't have a natural gas hookup. You you have you know an electrical outlet, and the electricity it runs the heat pump that you don't have to use that often. And yes, it, it runs the air conditioners in the summer, but that's that's because it fits in with that climate and the warmer climate up here. Telling people that they can't cook with natural gas and they can't use natural gas to heat their homes. Wow, can you just imagine what that would do? It wouldn't be good. But yet, this is the government, and this is what they're looking at doing moving forward. All right, when we come back, it's time for Wisconsin's Afternoon News. John McCure is in. We'll find out what he has on his mind. Stick around.